It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. There's a new class of blockbuster drugs. Drugs like Ozempic. They're changing bodies. And all of a sudden, just the weight starts falling off. Fortunes. It just got too expensive. They're just bank breakers. And industries. There was a lot of excitement. There was a lot of skepticism. The impact of these drugs from business to health is just beginning. From the journal, Trillion Dollar Shot. Find it in the journal feed wherever you get your podcasts. Due to the graphic nature of this murder case, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes dramatizations and discussions of murder and assault that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. Ladies and gentlemen, it's the moment you've all been waiting for. The bout for the heavyweight championship title. The rematch of the century. Reigning champion, Muhammad Ali. Versus the challenger and former heavyweight champ, Sonny Liston. And the fight has begun. The two champions are circling each other, keeping their distance, sizing up their opponent. Ali is stepping forward, testing the waters, Ali throws the first punch. Looks like he missed. Liston has dropped to the floor. I've never seen anything like this. One punch and Liston is down. Looks like they're calling it. The match is over. Ali wins via knockout. This is Unsolved Murders, True Crime Stories, a ParCast original. I'm your host, Carter Roy. And I'm your host, Wendy McKenzie. Every Tuesday, we dive into the world of a real unsolved murder and try to solve the case. You can find episodes of Unsolved Murders and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Unsolved Murders for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Unsolved Murders in the search bar. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and on Twitter at ParCast Network. And if you enjoy today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you are listening. This is our second episode on Sonny Liston, the notorious heavyweight boxer who died mysteriously in his Las Vegas home in the last days of 1970. Last week, we examined the events leading up to his suspicious death. And this week, we'll uncover who may have been responsible. Sonny Liston was a black man born into poverty in the 1930s. Not only did he suffer abuse at the hands of his father, but he faced a mistrusting and often blatantly bigoted world. But through sheer talent and some ties to the mob, 
he was able to become a world heavyweight champion and celebrity. Sonny's boxing career was illustrious and celebrated. That is, until a supposedly fixed match against Muhammad Ali brought both him and his career down to the mat on May 25, 1965. His fans were puzzled and outraged. Why would a former world champion go down so easily? What did he have to gain from losing that match? The world would never know the answer to that question, although a fairly credible rumor suggested that the Nation of Islam, which backed Ali, had come to an agreement with the Mafia, which backed Sonny. If Sonny took a dive, the story goes, he'd be granted a cut of Ali's future profits. Based on the lavish life Sonny led until his death, the public had good reason to believe these rumors were true. Sonny became a fixture in Las Vegas, enjoying the lifestyle of a celebrity on the Vegas Strip. He developed a gambling habit, and to supplement his income, in 1966, the former heavyweight champ turned to selling drugs, with the help of his seedy friend, Ash Resnick. It's also possible that Sonny Liston used the drugs he sold. However, whether or not Sonny actually had a drug habit is debated to this day. Regardless, the unfortunate truth remains the same. On January 5, 1971, an approximately 40-year-old Sonny Liston was found dead in his Las Vegas home with traces of heroin in his system. The coroner reported that his death was due to natural causes, lung congestion and heart failure. But this report would only lead to greater controversy. In fact, the police claimed that Sonny had a long history of using drugs and they quickly wrote off his death as related to his presumed heroin use. This declaration struck those who knew Sonny as suspicious. They didn't believe Sonny would ever use heroin. He was deathly afraid of needles. Sonny, I need you to open up. I have to give you the anesthesia before we can start the procedure. Doctor, I can't. You keep that needle out of my mouth and you find another way. There is no other way. Unless I fill your cavity without anesthesia, and I guarantee you'll like that even less than the needle. You might be right. So what should we do? Oh, come on now, Sonny. Get back in the chair. I need to fill your cavity. <sighs> Linda, see if you can get him back in here. Sonny hated needles so much, according to his trainer, he even canceled a lucrative tour in Africa because he would have been required to get several vaccinations beforehand. So it seems safe to assume that if Sonny were using heroin, he did not do so intravenously. There are other ways for people to use heroin, but police found a puncture mark on Sonny's arm. Though ultimately, the coroner's report stated that the body was too decomposed to conclude whether that was related to cause of death. Given his extreme fear of needles, it seems incredibly unlikely that he had used a needle himself. Which makes it much more likely that somebody forced the heroin into his system. This is a particularly compelling idea because during the 1970s, one of the Mafia's favorite execution tactics was the lethal injection of heroin. Sonny had many connections to the mob, and while this afforded him a lot of luxuries in life, it also came with a high level of risk. Unfortunately for Sonny, by 1970, he wasn't as useful to the mob as he once had been, and it is quite possible that they may have begun to think he was more trouble than he was worth. 
For one, there are reports that Sonny had gotten a little loose with sharing details of what really happened with the infamous Ali fight, particularly when he was drunk. Allegedly, he was often found in bars around Las Vegas airing his grievances. He claimed he was supposed to be paid some of Muhammad Ali's profits, but had yet to be paid at all. If this was true, and the Ali arrangement did take place, then the mob would certainly have a problem with Sonny talking about it around town. This was reason enough for them to take care of him. But Sonny made things worse for himself still. He got between the mob and their money. As he aged, Sonny's boxing matches became more infrequent. But in 1970, he had one fight scheduled against Chuck Wepner, the boxer who inspired Sylvester Stallone's character in Rocky. Unfortunately, Sonny's mafia-connected managers had other plans. They had a scheme to turn a profit even bigger than Sonny's fight would earn them. Listen, Sonny, got an update for you from up the ladder. We need you to throw the Chuck Wepner fight. No. No? No. After Ali, I was a joke. I want to win. That's how you're going to talk to me? I'm not loving this conversation, Liston. If he did refuse to throw the match for the mob, Sonny was essentially biting the hand that fed him. But he was also making it clear that he was no longer a useful player. This, combined with his loose tongue about the Ali fight, very well may have cost him his life. But the Mafia wouldn't have been the only group who had a problem with Sonny spreading that secret around town. The other party allegedly involved in the deal was a faction of the Nation of Islam, it's entirely possible they had a hand in Sonny's death as well. The Mafia and the Nation of Islam were two dangerous and intimidating organizations. But to make matters worse, they weren't the only ones who wanted Sonny dead. A former friend of Sonny's had also made no bones about wanting the boxer out of the picture. His name was Earl Cage, and he was a Las Vegas beautician. Earl! Sonny Liston, my man! You here for a haircut or to talk business? Haircut. But you know I always talk business. That's just a given. Got it. Hey, Angelina, go take your coffee break. Give Mr. Liston and I a little privacy to do a haircut. Yo, I got 25K worth of the good stuff in the back. Let's get to it. In addition to running a salon, Earl Cage was a successful drug dealer. He ran a mid-level cocaine and heroin operation in and around Las Vegas. Both Sonny and Earl participated in the illegal activities of the business, but ultimately, only one of them would pay the price. Police! This is a drug bust! Put your hands where I can see them! Earl Cage, you're under arrest. Sonny Liston! Hey, man, I'm not going to prison. You didn't let me finish. I was going to say... How are you? Oh, yeah, yeah, I'm all right. I was just here getting a haircut. I'm not involved in anything suspicious or whatever you're here for. You're free to go. Enjoy your night. Boys, get Earl in the car, would you? When police raided Earl's ranch home in North Las Vegas, they let Sonny walk free. That same night, as Earl was booked into the station, Sonny was pulled over for drunk driving. He was so irate that he punched the cop and ended up spending the night in jail anyway. However, the case never officially went to court. 
Reportedly, Earl was angry about this injustice, and especially about the fact that Sonny didn't use his influence to get both of them off the hook. So Earl vowed to get revenge on Sonny. When I get out of this place, I'll get that son of a- Hey, settle down. Don't make me get the warden. I'm not doing anything. I'm just saying, Sonny Liston's gonna pay. After Sonny's death, many in Vegas thought that Earl saw to it that Sonny did pay. But for the Las Vegas Police Department in 1971, all of these potential suspects, the mob, the Nation of Islam, and Earl Cage, were entirely irrelevant. They had closed the file on Sonny Liston, and they weren't interested in reopening it. Though very few people actually believed Sonny's death to be natural or an accident, its classification went unchallenged for over a decade. Then, in 1982, one surprise visitor at the Las Vegas Metropolitan Police Department changed everything. Coming up, we'll look at the shocking details that emerged regarding Sonny's death and see what they may mean for the case. And now, back to the story. After Sonny Liston's mysterious death in December of 1970, there were a handful of people pleased to see the divisive boxer gone. But there were exponentially more still who couldn't accept that he had died from natural causes. He had won 15 of his last 16 fights, 14 by knockout. Sure, he had a drinking problem, but he seemed fit as a fiddle. Despite the general public suspicions, there was nothing they could do. The case was closed. That is, until June 14, 1982, when a visitor to the LVMPD broke the case wide open. The mysterious visitor was received by one officer, Gary Beckwith. A little over a decade prior, he had been one of the police officers who had investigated Sonny's death. In fact, he was one of the first to arrive at the scene the night Geraldine discovered the body. Hello, Beckwith here. Gary, I got a guy here you need to talk to. Can it wait? I don't think so. He says he's got information on something about to go down. There might even be something in this that's new on Sonny Liston. The man Beckwith spoke to that day was named Irwin Peters, and the tale he proceeded to tell the officer was a strange one. Peters had been working as a professional crook in Vegas alongside a former undercover cop named Larry Gandy. Gandy was a Vietnam vet with significant PTSD. He later claimed that this condition drove him to volunteer for the most volatile, dangerous drug busts he could participate in. Gandhi would frequently arrest drug dealers by posing as a customer. Most dealers at the time wouldn't sell unless you used their product in front of them, so Gandhi had to get clever. He kept capsules of maple syrup in his pocket, which he would switch out with heroin pills at the last minute to inject into his veins. Afterwards, he'd have the dealer arrested. Gandhi was an extremely effective undercover cop, but... His non-traditional methods clashed with the modernization of the department. He was eventually fired from the force for insubordination. Though he sued and won his job back, he chose to walk away regardless. Then, ejected from law enforcement and with nothing to lose, Gandhi turned to bounty hunting and then crime. 
including partnering with Erwin Peters to run a successful robbery operation in the late 60s and 70s. The two men developed a unique system for their burglaries. Gandhi acquired a real estate license so he could case a home by posing as a realtor, setting up an open house. Then, on a different day, at an agreed-upon time, Erwin Peters would go to the house, tie up and blindfold the unsuspecting owners, and call Gandhi. Gandhi would then show up and rob the place, taking everything valuable that he could get his hands on. As Erwin Peters recounted the robberies he'd done with Gandhi, Beckwith listened with rapt attention. One particularly odd detail stuck out to him. Peters told him that, while performing the robberies, Gandhi disguised his voice as Daffy Duck. And remember that Sonny Liston thing? Gandhi killed him. He shot Sonny up with heroin. That's where you lose me, Pete. There was no murder. That wasn't an overdose. Gandhi bragged me right after he did it. Beckwith didn't know how much he could trust what Erwin Peters had told him. As far as he knew, Sonny's death was investigated and done with. Death by natural causes, probably due to his heavy drug use. Sonny was a heroin addict, and that was that. Plus, despite Larry Gandy's record, he was well-respected in the force. Something of a legend, even. It was tough for Beckwith to believe that he had been behind a significant portion of Las Vegas's robberies. Still, just to be sure, Beckwith began looking into the claims Peters made. He searched through records of robberies done in the Las Vegas area over the past decade, and to his surprise, he found a connection. Many of the victims described that the robber underneath the mask spoke in a distinct Daffy Duck voice. There it was. At least one part of Peter's claims seemed to be true. Beckwith's next step was to see if the robbery Peters predicted would actually take place. The officer had serious doubts that the infamous Larry Gandy would be making an appearance, but the Daffy Duck coincidence was too strange to ignore. So, on June 16, 1982, Beckwith set up a sting. That same day, Erwin Peters began to carry out a robbery with Gandy, just as they always had. First, Peters went into the house. Inside, instead of a couple of unsuspecting homeowners to tie up, there were only cops milling about. His tip had worked. After about 20 minutes, Peters called Gandy, his voice shaking. He was terrified. Hey, uh, Gandy, I... I got everything taken care of over here. Cool. I'll be there in a sec. My ass is killing me. My car seat is all messed up. Say, you want to get some food after this? I'm starving. Sure. What do you want to eat? I don't I don't know anything. Anything? You don't have an opinion? Mexican? Italian? We could go get waffles at Miriam's. Any of those sound great. Any of those? Who is this and what did you do with Peters? You're in a weird mood today, man. Never known you not to have an opinion on waffles. Just get over here, okay? Jeez, I'm on my way. Testy. But when Gandhi walked through the door, it wasn't a routine robbery waiting for him on the other side. Instead, he faced a row of police guns all pointed at him. Gandhi put his hands up, revealing that he was unarmed. All of the policemen sighed heavily with relief. None of them wanted to have to shoot the legendary Larry Gandy. 
Gandhi was arrested without a fight and read his rights. A second piece of Erwin Peters' intel had proved to be true. This left Beckwith seriously wondering. Maybe Larry Gandhi had killed Sonny Liston. But Beckwith thought they had enough on Gandhi to put him away for 10 years, at least, with robbery charges. It didn't matter which crime Gandhi went away for, as long as he was put away. But Beckwith underestimated Gandhi's connections, who walked away with an indefinitely suspended sentence. It's hard to know for certain if Beckwith actually thought Gandhi killed Sonny. Ultimately, nothing could really be done with this potential lead. In 1982, the Las Vegas Police Department had no substantial evidence that Larry Gandy had murdered Sonny. And the years after that didn't change. So Sonny's death remained listed as due to natural causes in the police files. More than a decade after his body was discovered, the case went back to laying dormant. That is, until nearly 20 years later, when an ESPN magazine journalist named Sean Assale tracked down Larry Gandy. The answers he found would shock him. Coming up, we'll hear what Larry Gandy himself had to say about the death of Sonny Liston. And now, back to the story. After Sonny Liston was discovered dead in his Las Vegas home on January 5, 1971, the cops ruled that he died of natural causes, stemming from lung congestion. But many weren't convinced that his death had been natural. Despite several possible suspects with clear motives, the Las Vegas Police Department had made no effort to investigate Sonny's death any further. Determined to find an answer where the LVMPD had not, Sean Assale, an ESPN magazine investigative journalist and author, began his own research. Sonny Liston's death was something of a legend at ESPN, and Assale had heard quite a bit about the boxer over the years. His interest in Sonny was piqued when he began researching unsolved murders for a novel. After coming across the details of Sonny's case, Assale began to pursue answers to the famous boxer's death in earnest. And eventually, he wrote an entire book on the subject. While conducting his research, Assail traced Officer Gary Beckwith's story to its conclusion, where it stopped just short of providing any real answers. But Assail wanted more. His first instinct was to reach out to Erwin Peters, but unfortunately, he never got the chance to speak to the informant. Assail learned that Peters had ratted on Gandy because Gandy hadn't paid him his full share of their earnings from their robberies. But while Peters was able to put Gandy away, it didn't yield the outcome he was hoping for. Not only did Gandy still refuse to pay Peters, he was furious. He made it clear that he would kill Peters as soon as he got the chance. Scared that Gandy would make good on that promise, Erwin Peters left Las Vegas in 1986 and moved to rural Oregon. There, he got married and started a new life far from his checkered past. Peters was always evasive about his whereabouts, even with his close family. His parents never knew where he was, and he instructed them not to ask him on the phone, as he was certain that his lines were tapped. But even with all his precautions, someone still found him. Babe, you got a postcard. A postcard? That's odd. No one knows this address. No one should even know I'm in Oregon. It's 
postmarked from Las Vegas. Let me see it. It's just a picture of a barren desert. Well, what's on the back? It says, this is where you'll be. Oh, God. Oh, don't be upset, babe. Maybe it's just something from the Tourism Bureau. Like, this is where you'll be next year on vacation. Or maybe it's just a teenager doing a prank. Put it in the trash and don't sweat it. But there was good reason for Peters to sweat it. One morning, just months after he and his new wife were married, she woke up to an empty bed. She couldn't find her new husband anywhere. She heard the car running in the garage and went to investigate. To her horror, she found Erwin Peters in the driver's seat, dead by apparent suicide. The theory that her husband had killed himself never made sense to Peters' wife, or with anyone else who knew Peters, especially since Erwin Peters had lived in fear of Larry Gandy. When a sale learned of Peters' death, he was discouraged, but still determined to get to the bottom of things. A sale considered his next move. If he wanted answers, he'd have to track down the man himself. He began looking for Larry Gandy. In the 21st century, finding Gandy was surprisingly easy. After a simple search on Facebook, a sale miraculously found the legendary ex-cop and sent him a message. He wasn't sure what he was expecting, but the response he got was far more open and honest than anything he could have hoped for. After exchanging a few messages back and forth, Gandy wrote, I would be delighted to sit down with you. I was well known in the old days. Some of my activities were positive and some were shameful. However, I have come to terms with my life and realized that I was responsible for my actions. I can't justify any of my behavior and can only give you the facts. I know the difference between right and wrong. It should be noted that I have finally forgiven myself and have quit carrying that bag of rocks up the mountain looking for a penance. See you. As the two made plans to meet at Gandy's home, Sale wondered what actions Gandy was referring to, and given Gandy's history, he couldn't help but feel a bit scared. As he knocked on the ex-cop's door, his heart pounded in his chest. Sean, nice to meet you. Uh, likewise. How's it going? Let me guess. You're here to ask if I killed Sonny Liston. Well, I can't say you're wrong. <laughs> Come on in. So, you didn't do all those robberies together? Seeing Gandy cut to the chase, a sale soon asked Gandy about the claims Peters had made against him. After all, many of them were quite serious. Yeah, all that stuff Peter said about me? I don't know what happened to him. He started to believe a lot of stuff that wasn't true. So, you didn't do all those robberies together? Oh, we did some of the robberies. But when I was a cop, I was a cop. I was always clean. The robberies were later, when I couldn't be on the force anymore. They took away my identity, you know? And I needed something. You can ask me what you came here to ask, if I killed Sonny. Okay. Well, did you? Nah, I didn't. But I could tell you who did. Really? Who? Earl Cage. Man owned a beauty salon and sold a heck of a lot of heroin out of that shop with Sonny. He killed him. You can count on it. 
Assail published this accusation in his book, The Murder of Sonny Liston, Las Vegas Heroin and Heavyweights in 2016. And there's good reason to believe it could be true. Earl Cage was the beautician and drug dealer who ran the mid-level heroin operation with Sonny back in the 60s. But when a drug bust landed Earl in jail, Sonny had walked out scot-free. Earl had always been angry at Sonny and vowed to get revenge. And so it's not hard to believe that there was some truth to what Gandhi told a sale. Still, even with a story as compelling as Gandhi's, there were many contradictions and convoluted accounts surrounding Sonny's death. Some say he died of a drug overdose, while others say he didn't use drugs at all. Some pointed the finger at Ash Resnick and Larry Gandy, and Gandy pointed it at Earl. But the murder could just as easily have been the work of the mob or the Nation of Islam. And despite how many of Sonny's acquaintances wished him harm, the suspects we've explored thus far still aren't the only answers to the question, who killed Sonny Liston? A chapter in a recent book has offered yet another possible murder suspect. The book, written by Greg Swaim and published in 2015, is called Warjack, America's Most Wanted. It profiles the author's father, the late mobster Dale Klein, a.k.a. James John Warjack. Warjack was an infamous hitman for the mob, as well as Swaim's absentee father. Finally, at the age of 30, the two met, and Swaim urged Warjack to open up about his past. Warjack was hesitant. He had once been on the FBI's most wanted list and feared that any talk of his sordid history would only incriminate his family. Finally, one night, with the help of alcohol, Swaim got some shocking information from his father about his past. God, I love whiskey. Mm. All right, what were you asking me? You're relentless. Fine. Here's the story. You know the boxer Sonny Liston? Of course. He was a heavyweight champion. Yeah? Well, I killed him. What? You killed him? All right, keep your voice down. Don't get all riled up. It was all pretty routine. Mob needed him to go, so I gave him an overdose of heroin. But you keep that to yourself. Got it. I'm serious! Or you won't like what happens. There's a movie script out there that'll explain all of it. But that's for after I'm dead. Swaim promised he wouldn't go digging and kept his father's secret for many years. But in 1997, Warjack passed away and Swaim flew to Los Angeles to retrieve and sort his father's belongings. That's when he made an interesting discovery. Amongst his father's things, Swaim found a business card for a movie producer. He called the number on the card and found that the man knew his father well and was also connected with the mob. Soon, Swaim arranged a meeting. And my dad said there's a script that would explain everything. Do you know anything about that? There is a script, and it contains a heck of a lot. But listen, just leave it alone. I won't do anything with it, but could I at least just read it? Someday. But for right now, it'll do things to your family that you don't want. Best to just let sleeping dogs lie. We don't know what's in that movie script and probably won't find out for many years. 
But we do know that Dale Klein, a.k.a. James John Warjack, claims that he was the hitman who offed Sonny Liston for the mob. It's certainly a plausible answer. After all, Warjack is the only person to have actually claimed to have killed Sonny, rather than simply being accused of it. And as for Sonny's wife and son, neither ever spoke publicly about their husband and father's death. After Sonny died, Geraldine retreated from the limelight, working various service jobs in the Las Vegas casinos. Geraldine didn't want to be the subject of attention. While at work, she always wore a name tag that simply said Jerry with a J instead of a G. It was a thin facade, but it did the trick. On one of the rare occasions that she granted the press an interview, Geraldine avoided speaking about her husband's death almost entirely. During his life, she'd been protective of Sonny, and she remained loyal to his legacy for years after his death. Though his life was embroiled in hardship and racism from the very beginning, Sonny rose to the highest possible level a fighter could achieve. But with the reckless air that compels someone to make a career out of fighting, Sonny was sure to have his enemies. And because of this, and perhaps because of the unchecked racism common in the 1970s, his death was never investigated further. To this day, the cause is still listed as due to natural causes. It's a tragedy that his death was never formally looked into as a murder, and that his killer, whoever it was, was never brought to justice. We may never know for certain who killed Sonny Liston, if anybody killed him at all, but with as many potential suspects as the case had, any of them could have brought him to his untimely end. Well, looking over the facts, I think that John James Warjak killed Sonny for the mob. Uh, we know that they had multiple reasons to want Sonny dead, and simply offing him would certainly be the way they deal with the problem. Plus, Warjak actually confessed. Huh, interesting. See, I think it was Larry Gandy. It seems odd for Irwin Peters to put himself at such risk by accusing Gandy of the crime if it wasn't true. I guess we'll never know. Well, at least until that movie script comes out. Thanks again for tuning in to Unsolved Murders. We'll be back next week with a brand new Unsolved Murder. For more information on Sonny Liston's death, amongst the many sources we used, we found The Murder of Sonny Liston, Las Vegas Heroin and Heavyweights by Shauna Sale and Warjack, America's Most Wanted by Greg Swain. Extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Unsolved Murders and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals, like Unsolved Murders, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Unsolved Murders on Spotify, just open the app and type Unsolved Murders into the search bar. Several of you have asked how to help us. If you enjoy the show, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. If we live till next time.
Unsolved Murders True Crime Stories was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound designed by Michael Langsner, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, Freddie Beckley, and Paul Mahler. This episode of Unsolved Murders was written by Lena Kuhn-Yumjohn, with writing assistance by Maggie Admire. The amazing cast of voice actors includes Mike Capozzi, Sky King, Harris Markson, and Dan Velasquez. It stars Wendy McKenzie and Carter Roy. Remember, if you enjoy these episodes and want to hear more true cold cases, follow Unsolved Murders on Spotify. New episodes premiere every Tuesday. Listen free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Butter, butter, butter.